Welcome to Schneps Connects. Today we have with us Nancy Yao Masbach, who has served as president of the Museum of Chinese in America, also known as MOCA, since 2015. As the president of MOCA, Nancy combines her experiences in business, arts, and culture to redefine the American narrative by examining the role of Chinese Americans in U.S. history. Prior to her time at MOCA, Nancy was the executive director of the Yale China Association. Nancy has over 20 years of leadership experience at nonprofit organizations and for-profit management. She received her MBA from the Yale School of Management, not too bad, and her AB from Occidental College. Great to have you, Nancy. Thank you so much. That was a generous intro. Thank you, Josh. It's really um, awesome to be with you. Another question. Well, it's my pleasure. Listen, just stay in the facts. You have an impressive background. Thanks. Appreciate it. It's all because I'm from Queens. There you go. A lot of good people have come from Queens. You know, Brooklyn is like internationally known, but Queens is uh, pretty prominent as well. Exactly. So talk a little bit about how you got involved with the museum and what led you up to your role. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's really my dream job. If I were to really look back and say, what would I want to do in 20, 25 years, you know, when you're sort of past midlife and trying to do something that's purposeful, yet something that you really feel like will contribute, uh, especially to the city I love, you know, I'm born and raised in New York, as I, um, as we were talking about from Queens, from Flushing. And a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people think Flushing was always this Asian American enclave, but we were probably, probably one of the second or third families of Chinese ancestry in Flushing. Hmm. So yeah, you probably know Josh is predominantly Italian American, German American, even um, South Asian American, you know, in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. But, you know, I always, um, I always thought about, you know, history and I think I was a little feisty um, young person. And just like, you know, every time we thought about Chinese culture or Chinese arts or anything, it was always about China, the ancestral home. So back in China, China, and I thought, well, I have an identity in America. I'm American-born Chinese. And I think I, even from a young child, I knew that, that that narrative really wasn't told in history textbooks as if it wasn't something interesting or of value in U.S. history. But um, so I always had that little bit of like in me um, and through the you know, my work experience, I've always looked at U.S.-China bilateral relations or um, Asian-American art, um, whether it be through... Um, plays or art or film or whatever it might be. And it kind of brought me right back around um, to trying to help the storytelling around Chinese American journeys um, and really those unshared, untold stories in what we like to call the making of America. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I first got involved in probably as early as eight, nine years old. The initial Museum of Chinese America was actually the New York Chinatown History Project. Hmm. Um, yeah, and it was based in a building that some of the folks on this call might might, might know uh, had a terrible fire in January 2020. But that building was 70 Mulberry Street in the heart of Chinatown. And my mom um, used to go there skills at another nonprofit that was housed in that building the Chinatown Manpower Project, which was is which still is a phenomenal organization that teaches skills um, for more recent immigrants. My mom learned how to type there, had to learn to fill out forms and all those types of things. And I was kind of always loitering around with her on Saturdays and Sundays when she was doing these classes. And I remember wandering in that building and came across the New York Chinatown History Project. 
Yeah. And then fast forward 35 years, the board said, we're looking for a new head of the museum. Would you be interested? And yeah, I really thought what a link back to my childhood and the things that I've done, both managing organizations, but also my my deep interest in um, Chinese American history, uh, U.S.-China relations, it all seemed to fit perfectly um, together. And, and, and I've been here for, I've been at MOCA for almost seven years. It's amazing how certain things in your childhood are ingrained in your memory forever, what you know, impression it makes on you. And it's great to see how, you know, you were thinking of it as a child and, you know, how life uh, goes that you now run the organization. It, it's, it is really incredible. And, and it, it's, it's tricky. It's the hardest job I've had, even though, you know, I've worked in other places where people are like, oh, that must have been a tough job, whether it's like in investment banking in Wall Street, where people have this assumption that there are long hours and the work is really complicated. But I think managing a nonprofit in, an, in a city, especially that's as densely populated and as complex as New York, with limited resources, this is by far the most complicated, interesting, yet also it's rewarding and then it's painful at the same time. I feel like everybody has ties to their, their you know, culture, their ancestors. You know, my family's Jewish and European. My grandparents came over. What would you say, you know, for, for your mission, what would you say the mission of the museum is? Is it giving people, you know, facts on the history or, or the Chinese community in the U.S., or what, what do you want people coming out of after they've been through the museum? You know, Josh, anytime someone shares anything about their ancestry, I want to ask five, six, seven, ten more questions. So the next time we get together, I'm asking you the questions. Yeah, sure, um, you got it. Especially because you're from Queens and the Queens backgrounds are so interesting. Yeah. Um, but you know what? A lot of people come into the museum and they have this assumption or perception that MOCA should be about Asian art or Chinese art, or they're looking for a a Ming Dynasty vase, or that traditional Chinese calligraphy on a scroll. And and I understand why they have those assumptions. Um, It's in part because the Chinese American identity is sort of still unveiling itself. Um, A lot of the stereotypes around Chinese in America um, is that they're foreign that they're perpetually foreign is a phrase that we often hear in the MOCA community, that for some reason, it is very hard to disentangle the way we look um, and the the strong culture behind the way we look and and, and sort of identify um, our face and our our beings and our identity as American. Um, So the actual mission of the museum does not have the word Chinese in it. And we really stress that the museum is not by Chinese Americans, for Chinese Americans, that it's finally our turn to get a little bit of attention. That would completely be erroneous. And what we always like to say is the Museum of Chinese in America is by all, for all. And what we're really trying to do is to to have any visitor, yourself, you know, your friends, anyone who's not of Asian ancestry, they experience MOCA. And when they're done with that experience, they have a truer, better sense of themselves because the names are different, but the experiences are the same. And some of the challenges and hill in this country, because of the way the systems are and the infrastructures that really need to be you know, honed and refined, they're broken. And, and I think that that's what we really hope, that MOCA can help broaden our lens on, on the American narrative um, and, and, and what is beautiful in this country of immigrants. That's terrific. 
I mean, there's no um, hiding the fact that there's been anti-Asian sentiment festered, I think, from the pandemic. I mean, you read it in news outlets, whether it's been, um, you know, people that are attacked or protests or or any of the other, you know, things that we've uh, read about or, you know, people have spoken about. What role has the museum played during that time? And do you see that? I mean, I, I, I have to imagine it's it's something that either you addressed in your mission or, you know, have thought about through the museum. Yes, um, yes. And I think because of the work we do and because of the content we collect, collector of um, tremendous stories, very painful stories. There have been recorded over 10,000 anti-Asian American Pacific Islander hate crimes. Mm. Um, we were talking to the DA's office yesterday and they're doing an incredible job in their community outreach and trying to help people identify what is a hate crime. Uh, you know, in what circumstance can you call them and mm -hmm. seek advice and guidance? So actually the museum about uh, 19 months ago, when we first heard on March 11th, the former administration in 2020 um, suggested that this was the Kung flu, the Chinese virus, you know, we saw the writing on the wall. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. for us to predict that there would be some correlation between uh, heightened anti-AAPI hate crimes, it was so obvious the writing was on the wall because it's happened before, right? When you are out there blaming a group of people, whether it's after 9-11 and you're blaming Muslims or Sikhs for the terrorist attacks for no good reason, if you're in the you know World War II period and because Japan is the enemy, the adversary, suddenly Japanese Americans are interned because they're a threat or they're spies. Uh, whether it's McCarthyism, these are all things that have happened in U.S. history. So we saw the writing on the wall and we started collecting stories um, in part to help create space um, for people who are dealing with this hate crimes to share those stories. We took down oral histories, well over 200. We collected artifacts, hate letters, letters where people were really standing up. And the most encouraging part of all of that collection were young people. You know, and we're about the same age, Josh, growing up in the same era. I've never, ever called in a hate crime that I've experienced mm. or any racist slurs. I'm 50 years old. Mm. I'm just so impressed and really empowered and inspired by young people who are saying, wait, this isn't right. This isn't OK. And I need to voice um, my feelings and sentiments around making a better today than, than what I just experienced. Well, listen, I feel a big part of ignorance comes from simply not being informed. Correct. You know, and not being informed doesn't mean you're not smart. There's plenty of pe smart people that are ignorant. So I think, you know, for you to collect those stories and communicate them is a great thing. You know, I love that you said that, Josh, because I think one thing that we really want to be careful about, because we want to make progress in this area. But if we don't meet people where they are, and that means at the door, it's nothing's going to change. And everyone has had a different upbringing. You know, I was talking to someone recently and they were referring to the way they were brought up that they grew up with a very small God. Um, but then as they got older, they, their God is bigger. And, and I just kind of appreciate that analogy, which is just like more accepting, less judging, more room um, for love, you know, more room for um, growth. But if we don't know that some people might be coming in with a smaller space that they grew up in and we just shun them or judge them for that, that's never going to progress the story. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Talk about the challenges that you face with the pandemic, because I feel like a lot of nonprofits, I mean, not just museums, but many nonprofits 
have been challenged, whether it's because donations have stopped or, you know, they weren't able to be open. So people weren't, um, you know, coming in and providing, you know, their sources of revenue. So, you know, I'd be curious to hear, A, how you got through it, and also how you just see other cultural institutions, you know, getting through this period of time. We had a triple whammy. We had and actually we saw cancellations of group tours. And we were so, you know, we just thought there's no way that this is because I think the, you know, COVID is in Chinatown, is it? And in fact, um, after more cancellations, we realized they probably did think that there was an association around COVID-19 and starting in China and perhaps then being in Chinatown, which is really, really odd because if anyone knows Chinatown, New York, we're already in sort of second, third, fourth generation, and they don't have a strong connection with China, whereas maybe in other areas, Sunset Park or Flushing or even like New Haven, Connecticut has very strong ties, um, especially given research and exchanges with China. Um, so the assumption that Chinatown would have that issue, um, we saw that really early on. Um, and that really, you know, started affecting the economics. Um, yeah, many businesses were terribly yeah. impacted, right? I know a lot of restaurants closed down, particularly some of my favorite dim sum places that held a lot of people. There were huge businesses. Huge businesses um, came down. But I will say, Mocha, despite the fire on January 23rd, um, the blatant racism and the sort of loss of populations visiting um, Chinatown, and then the COVID-19 and the racism, those like triple whammy effects mm. were so great. But you know what we did? We did very earnestly look for all the opportunities around stimulus. And we got the first stimulus. We were able to get that. And we committed to what the stimulus was about. The stimulus was about two things, pay your rent and pay your people, right? And we paid our rent and we paid our people. We did not let one person go. Um, we did not miss one rent payment. Because I guess we all really believe that if you're going to be in this and you're going to be an ethical participant in trying to, you know, do what we, we really want, you know, the recovery to look like, you have to be a part of it. Um, and then we got the second stimulus and we did the exact same thing. Um, and at the same time, I will share the very good news around, you know, the foundation world, the corporate world. They came out in full force. They said, wait a second, you know, around BLM, Black Lives Matter, and a lot of the sort of social justice issues that surfaced, um, re recognizing that the Asian American Pacific Islander is all within this racism and the systemic issues that we have. Um, they really stepped forward and started doing some tectonic changes in their funding. And MOCA and many other cultural organizations, though small, did receive significant support. And, and we were really blessed by that. And, and we see a major shift in funding um, around smaller cultural museums that before COVID, it was hand to mouth. You know, we almost closed probably three times and closed, I mean, forever mm. in the period of time that I was working it, though we were very earnest and being really good stewards and being frugal and making the right decisions. It was just a very hard business model. Um, but I think people and foundations recognize that and they've been making changes. You touched on the fire. I mean, that's devastating, both I assume financially and just uh, emotionally. Talk a little bit about what the plan is. I mean, how are you going to be able to 
reopen that space and reutilize that space? What, what are you able to get through the, um, I guess, dealing with insurance and everything else that's involved or is that still under uh, work? Oh yeah, you know, you must have experienced something. I hope it went okay because you are asking all the right questions right, on that right. front. You know, Mocha has such a small team. Um, we call ourselves the Mighty Mocha. Um, there are twelve. We have um, the little engine that could, but we, yep. you know, we only have twelve full-time people. We we, we touch fifty thousand. You know, people came through the door before COVID. We have a four million person, you know, digital reach, and the all that work with insurance was 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 really difficult. But we did get it done. Um, we were able, thanks to the incredible volunteers um, in Chinatown, um, in other museums and culturals, conservators all over the country came out and said, what can we do? Mm-hmm. So we were able to extract out pretty much 98% of the collections that was in that fire building at 70 Mulberry. Um, and, and, and Josh, like you, you've seen a fire in New York City before just growing up in the city. Like this building and our collections was not meant to survive that building fire. I mean, the fifth floor was gone. The fourth, mm-hmm. third floor burnt to crisp. The first floor completely saturated with 16 hours of water hoses. And our entire collection was on the second floor. Um, and the second floor, everything in the contents in our collections came out unscathed, which is, which is just absurd. So we were able to then quickly stabilize all those materials in four different locations um, during COVID and then rehouse them in a temporary location around the block from our physical permanent museum. Um, So it's currently there. We've calling it the Mocha Workshop. It's on Howard Street. And we have conservators working there every single day um, since we opened that workshop a year ago. So all 85,000 items have been rehoused. We're, we're assessing all of the damage. It will take five years and probably around $5 million to properly conserve it. Hmm. Uh, but, but the other amazing silver lining that came all these families from all over the country have said, oh, we heard about your collections and how incredible it is. We have this you know, family album. Um, we have this abacus we have this traditional Chinese dress. Would you be interested in adding it to your collection? So from the fire came all this opportunity and we are actually going on an eight city roadshow all over the country in uh, beginning November, December, and January to look at these artifacts and to increase and grow our collections. That's just absurd. That's just the most beautiful thing that's come out yeah, of that's it. That's terrific. You know, I'd love to hear a little bit about your exhibit responses, the Asian American voices resisting the tides of racism and, and the extension of that uh, exhibit into 2022. Can you share a little bit about that exhibit and what people can expect to, to see from that? We recognize that when we reopened in July, um, those who were coming to visit the museum reasons, and, and many of them probably were coming out for the first time. They heard about this exhibit. They heard that we had collected all all these oral histories. And I think in some ways we are anticipating that visitors would use it as a safe space, as almost a therapeutic space to, you know, understand where their feelings are. I've, I've, I've spoken to so many people who have lived here, you know, for the majority of their life, but were immigrants or child of immigrants. And they have shared with me that they have never been more fearful Hmm. Um, they have never been more scared of walking on the streets 
They do not take mass transportation anymore. It's terrible. It's terrible. And, 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 and you know, I, I haven't taken mass transportation. And I, I've already told you, well, you know, I'm a tough and tumble Queens girl. Like, mm-hmm. I have not gotten on the subway since before COVID. I drive or walk everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and it's because maybe we're collecting all these stories and some of them are so random. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm scared. And, and I'm embarrassed to say I'm scared. And I'm embarrassed to say that I have changed my lifestyle because of that fear. But until we can fully redefine and rewrite the narrative and have people get more educated, like you're saying, Josh, it's going to be tricky to understand that Asians are not foreigners. We are a part of this country. We have helped build this country. You know, there are so many components of that that's just so misunderstood. And the racism is blatant. So this, this exhibit is for everyone. Um, it's, it's for people to help educate themselves on this history. And, and, and what we've done is take the 18 months of stories we've collected, but place it alongside 200 years of Asian American history. So a lot of people think, oh, this anti-API stuff is just this moment in 2020, 2021 because of the Kung flu or whatever, but it isn't. It, just like 400 years of oppression of Blacks and African-Americans, Asian-Americans in this country have suffered from blatant racism, discrimination, legislation that excludes them or, or interns them for 200 years. But, but very few people know that history. So that's what this exhibit is about. And because of such a response to it, we extended it out for, for five months, actually, um, so more people could come take a look at it as, as they felt safer to leave their homes. You know, on top of some of the other difficulties that, that you mentioned, you know, I know recently the museum has been the target of protests for a range of issues, and many of them not even related to the museum. One of those issues involved the jail that's planned for Chinatown and money that some say the museum received um, in conjunction with it. Could you address that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the museum has had hundreds of conversations around this, trying to make sure everyone knew exactly what the facts are. Um, And the facts are so absolutely clear, but I understand why some people might have the misperception or social media has provided the wrong information because of open wounds, because of anger, because of 40 years or 50 years of inequity in arts and cultural funding. Uh, But the museum did receive a sum total of $39.3 million So from my understanding, the largest non-cultural institution group gift um, to a cultural museum, and that is to purchase a permanent home for the museum. So the museum has been around for 41 years, but it has always been a renter. Hmm. We have paid rent for every single day of our existence. The rent each year in the last 15 years was approximately $500,000. I was brought in to help see process that we had never applied for before through the Department of Cultural Affairs, the capital grant process. So for the last six years, we have been applying formally through a very large and complex grant process that DCLA issues every single year. You submit in February, you receive a verdict in July, and MOCA has received over the last six years a cumulative allocation of $39.3 million. Unfortunately, in, 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 in a document that the mayor had issued around the jails, they put it as, oh, these are great things that will happen in the community over this period of time. And for some reason, they extracted out the capital grant 
that we had received through DCLA and place it into that agreement thing. Um, so I can understand why people can be you know, misperceived, but we've shown everyone the grant applications that we've applied for. Uh, and the other part I think that there's confusion is this has never has been given to a cultural museum like MOCA. Um, there is not one Asian American cultural institution group in New York. Um, the 35 CIGs in New York receive 80% of the funding um, from the DCLA. And also the other very important part of this grant process is MOCA never sees the money. The money goes directly to the seller of the property. So some people have this impression that we have a bank roll that has $39.3 million in it. We don't ever see a penny of that money. That money always goes directly to the seller of the property that goes to the museum. So it's, it's all been very much conflated. And I think there are a lot of painful things. You mentioned Jing Fong, the dim sum restaurant. You know, the only association we've ever had with Jing Fong is that we had a banquet there. You know, there's no correlation at all with MOCA and Jing Fong or MOCA and displacement. We're not a, a residential real estate owner. You know, there are so many things that are all these ills and that have been conflated into MOCA. We don't know anything about criminal reform. And we have been vocal at the top of our lungs around the jail in Chinatown. My own family marched against the Manhattan detention complex in the early 80s. You know, we are absolutely against putting a jail in Chinatown and we will, we will shout that from any, any rooftop. But for some reason, the protesters are targeting MOCA for the absolute wrong reasons. Well, thank you for setting the record straight. Thank you for asking because it's, it's complicated because city funding is complicated and arts and cultural funding is and the largest arts and cultural budget in, in the country is super complicated. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about what you would say to those that haven't visited your exhibitions. Oh, please come. You know, <laughs> you have a perfect, beautiful experience waiting for you if you've never visited the museum. Uh, we also commissioned some performance work. Response to the hate crime. So we have archive this incredible electronic cello and violinist that created this piece. We have a Jay Chen dance project that commissioned a dance piece. We have the New York Chinese Cultural Center that also commissioned a piece called Home. And what we really hope is that when you visit the museum, you will have a greater sense of yourself when, we, when you hear about the stories through the lens of the Chinese American journey. And, and also, you gotta eat in Chinatown after. I mean, the best food in the city is, you know, right in front of um, the museum. And also when you come, you know, we have this beautiful welcome team. Um, we have a Chinatown map that we curated that tells you all the little places Chinatown, you can tell, take a self-guided walking tour. We make some suggestions on places to eat that will bring you into the heart of that history. Chinatown is a living, breathing, historic, neighborhood. There is so much going on. And let MOCA be your guide into Chinatown. And also let us be your guide into U.S. history um, from the Chinese American lens. And I promise you, you will not regret the experience. I love it. Where could people find out more about the, the museum? What, what, what your website, what your social channels, where can you direct people? Absolutely. Um, our website is M-O-C-A-N-Y-C. Org, so mochanyc.org. And what I really encourage is actually we just joined the Mocha Connects app. 
Um, so there are 30 uh, cultural institutions all over the world There are that is on the Mocha Connects app. Uh, you can download it. And that app will help you before, during, and after your visit to Mocha. So they'll give you some background before your visit. They'll have an audio um, accompaniment for when you're visiting the museum. And then they'll give you some sort of follow-up things that you can do to you know, continue the story. Um, and also Mocha is really uh, trying to be in the classrooms. So if you have a PTA group or um, you'd like to bring your, um, you know, your class to the museum, reach out to us. We have uh, many, many options for helping to um, you know, broaden this narrative. And I, I really look forward to, to seeing everyone. And of course we're on Facebook, um, Instagram, all the, all the normal um, social media outlets, WeChat um, and, um, but yeah. We're really looking forward to meeting more people. Terrific. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for being with us to share your story and the story of MOCA. And, and hopefully we get people out to visit the museum in Chinatown. You know, Josh, I love, love your podcast. And thank you for sending that positivity out there. We all need it. It's our pleasure. That's what we're here for. Tell everybody's stories and you have a great one. Oh, cool. Thanks. Thanks so much. Make sure to check out a new episode of Schneps Connects every week, wherever you get your podcasts or stream us online at podcasts.schnepsmedia.com. <laughs>